right? We talked about the sin of homosexuality. Right, why? Because it's there. Because God, in his Bible, in his revealed word to us, calls it shameful and sinful. The honest truth is, it would be easier if we didn't have to believe that, right? Because of the culture that we live in and the world that we live in. But it's true. And so we embrace it. Not, not only do we begrudgingly say, well, if God said, I guess we better, we got to believe it. I don't want to, but we do. But we should be excited about that. We should joyfully believe the things that God has said are true. So when we look at the Bible and we tell other people God's truth, it's not us, right? It's not our rules, but it's God's rules. You see, we don't have the freedom to pick and choose. Oh, well, I like this part, but I don't like this part. It's not a self-help book, right? You, can't, you go read one of those and you say, hey, like, oh, I really like what he had to say here, but three pages later, I eh, didn't really like that. I disagree with that. So we cut that out and we keep what we like and we don't keep what we don't like. This is the God of the universe who has revealed himself in his written word. Every word of it is true. Every word of it is good. And we should embrace it and we should love it and we should want to believe it with everything that we are. We should celebrate this because this is God's truth. Now, with that being said, we should also want to see the entire world embrace this. We should also want to see everyone understand what is happening here. And so when people don't, our desire should be to tell them what they're missing out on. I think this is what it means to point out sin, right? We're not coming out of some sick desire or some pleasure thinking about this person who is going to go to hell and like, haha, like I relish in the fact that you're wrong and I'm right and I'm, joy I'm overjoyed by that. But the idea of pointing out sin is because we love humanity, we should love humanity in the same way that God does. God loves all of his creatures, all of his creation. The goal is for salvation. The goal is to bring people to see that they need forgiveness, not to condemn. Right? We are not the judge. We are simply the messenger of what is true. And so when we point out sin in others, we should be quick to let them know that we are also sinners. Look, I see, I see that you're a broken and hurting person, and so am I. And let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life with my brokenness and with my pain. He has forgiven me. He has taken that away. And that's what I want for you. Right? That's what our evangelism should look like. It's not us sitting on a high horse judging those who don't believe. But rather, it's trying to bring them into the thing that we know is so wonderful and so beautiful. And so what Paul is speaking of then in these verses is when we fall into hypocrisy, right? This trap of thinking that we are better than somebody else because they're stuck in sin and we maybe have overcome that, right? And even if you have, even if, if you're seeing victory in your life in a sin where someone else is struggling, we have to remember that it's not us doing it, but it's the Holy Spirit giving us that power and giving us that strength. And so in short, Paul is saying, don't be a hypocrite. Don't judge somebody for their sin looking down upon them when you are guilty of the same thing. If we condemn others when we are doing the exact same sin, this is what it looks like to be a hypocrite. And so 
For example, when I stand up here and communicate to you, what, when I preach, I'm preaching to you the things that God convicted me of. When I was reading his word, I'm reading the commentaries, I'm studying, and God is saying, this is where your shortcomings, this is where I want to encourage you, and this is where I want you to feel convicted. And I just stand up here praying that the Lord is going to use the same things that he, ha- that, that he helped me with to help you, right? I'm preaching to myself first and foremost, and you guys are just sort of like a beneficiary of it. And I'm hoping that, it, that it's applying to you in the same way, or at least in some areas that it's that you and I are similar, right? That humans, we as Christians, are, are similarly struggling with things. It's when the preacher stops thinking of his sermons as being applied to himself that they're in a lot of trouble, right? I've known many pastors who have fallen to, to whatever it might be, whether it be money or adultery or different things that, that plague the pulpit. And almost every time, it's because they stopped listening to themselves. They stopped listening to their own sermons. They're preaching, thinking, that is for everybody else, but it's not for me. And I'm telling you here, when I come before you each week, I'm not coming as if I have figured all of these things out. I'm coming to you telling, this is what God revealed to me. This is where he convicted me, and this is where he encouraged me. Now, the church, we have a reputation, right? Or at least the world looks at the church and says, ah, that's a building full of hypocrites. The thing that Paul is warning us against here. So my encouragement this morning, the challenge for us as a church, is to overcome that. It may not even be true, right? It may not be true in your life. You might be listening to all of that and saying, that's exactly how I feel when I meet the non-believer. I don't feel any level of superiority over anybody. I recognize my sin. I know how dependent I am on Jesus. And so when I share the gospel, I do it completely in humility. So then you're not being hypocritical, right? But the the perception is the churches are full of hypocrites and Christians are hypocrites. And we have to be able to overcome that, right? If we're ever going to reach the world, we have to be able to destroy that thing, right? This perception that that's what we are. And the only way that we can do that is to rightfully and fully communicate the gospel. I admit that it is an uphill battle. Because it has been put out to the world. The world has made this claim against us as the church for so many years that people believe it whether they see evidence of it or not. If you ask most people who don't go to church, whether they be a non-believer or a believer, and they say, oh, I'm done with church. Almost, I mean, I would say probably 90% of the time the number one reason they're going to give you is because, ah, this building's full of hypocrites. Right? And so we have to fight against that. And God, if he is willing to, or if he is able to completely destroy sin and death, he's, he's willing and he's able to destroy this. But we have to speak rightly about our sin. We have to speak rightly about the gospel and about other people's sin. So I am encouraging, I'm challenging you, do not ever fall into this trap. Be open, be transparent about your sin. We are not the judge, right? We are simply the messenger. God is the one who is judging, we are going into the world and telling people this is the truth of who God is. Now why is it that we would take on such a a hard task? Pointing out other people's sin, is that anybody's favorite thing to do in the room? Is it your favorite thing for someone to come to you and point out your sin? This is not fun on either side of it, right? And so we think, wow, 
If nobody's enjoying it, why, well, let's just not do that. We'll just skip it altogether, right? If, if nobody's having fun, we sh- just shouldn't do it. But God is calling us to this, right? Because you see what's happening here is that Paul tells us that God's patience with us, it's for our repentance. This is what it's supposed to lead us to. And we are on God's team on this, right? And we're on our brother's team. If we see sin in somebody's life, it's not us versus them. It's us together trying to, both of us, myself and the person or whoever, that we are always trying to become closer to the Lord. But you know what? God's kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, it's not a loophole. We don't get to look at, oh, God is patient. I'm just going to keep doing this. This sin... It brings me so much happiness. I'm just going to keep doing it. And I know that God is always going to forgive me. He's faithful to do it. So I don't have to change. I'm not going to try and do anything about my sin. I'm just going to keep living, keep sinning, because I know and I'm going to take advantage of God's patience and his forgiveness. That's not what it's for. God's patience is to lead us to repentance. Because the thing is, is if it were too harsh, it would make us want to run away. I'm reminded of one of my um, favorite novels. I really like Americana. So William Faulkner and John Steinbeck, these guys, I just read their books over and over and again. I love it. Um, And there's one of Faulkner's famous novels is The Light in August. And he gives us this character who grows up and he is just hedonistic in every part of his life. Everything that he does, we look at it and say, man, everything he is doing is an affront to God. And it's an affront to Scripture. And so the writer, he gives us this backstory. This kid, when he was seven or eight, he's adopted. He's adopted into an extremely strict Presbyterian family, and his adoptive father, this kid's like first or second grade, he would leave him in the barn all day long, and every hour he would go out there and he'd say, do you know your catechism? And the little boy, because he's eight, said, no, I don't. And this adoptive father would just beat him mercilessly and then leave him to it and come back every hour, every hour. No wonder the kid hated the church. No wonder the kid hated the Bible, right? And so this is the point. God's patience is there because he loves us. He knows how, strong, how hard it is for us to live in a way that is glorifying to him in everything that we do. And so he's patient, but we have to fight, right? We have to do our part. It is to lead us to repentance, not so that we can sit back and say, oh, it's great. I'm secure in my salvation. I can do whatever I want. Let me, if that is your thought process, if that is your attitude, I would, I would challenge you. You should look deep within yourself and really ask yourself, are you serving Jesus or are you using him? Are you trying to use him? Because I think in that matter, you probably aren't getting the benefit you think you are. Because in, in, with that mentality of, I don't care about honoring the Lord. I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm taking advantage of this. I, I would say you, you might not actually be a Christian. Because Christianity is about loving God. And what does Jesus tell us? If you want to love me, obey my commandments. That is the number one way in which we show our love to the Lord. Is that we are in obedience. Not so that we can earn our salvation, but so that we can bring him glory. So that we can glorify him and make him look down upon us and be happy. That song we listened to earlier, right? the, the The treasures that we receive in heaven... We recognize that it doesn't bring like a greater level of salvation, but we are given rewards in heaven for our obedience. Jesus tells us this straight. I mean, it's, 
it's not as if we're all going to live in the same size mansion, right, in heaven. There's going to be more jewels for those who are more obedient. That's what the Bible teaches us. But it's more about the glory of God, right? It's, it's not about what we're going to gain. And so the important thing here is do not presume upon God's patience and just continue to live in sin. And so I ask you this morning, where is it that you need to repent? And where, why have you not done so completely? What's the sin that keeps showing up over and over and over again? Do you see God's patience in that sin, whatever it is? I'm sure it's different for every one of us, right? Do you see God's patience in that? Is that he is long-suffering and he's giving you a chance to repent? Are you fighting back or have you given up against it? If you've given up, I challenge you. Stop giving up. Fight. Fight back against that sin. I don't care if it shows up 15 times a day. You fight, you fight, and you fight, and you fight. God is patient. He will help you. But he does not look kindly upon us when we say, you know what, I'm done fighting that. I just let it take over. I'm going to let that one run wild. There's nothing I can do about it. It's just there. It's going to be there. I'm, I'm done. God doesn't look kindly upon that, right? He wants us to continue to fight. He has patience for us when we fight. Now, I know that only you, are, you can know, right? Only you can know the answer to that question. And this leads us to this point that Paul makes. And that the reason that we don't judge is because we are flawed and God is not. God is the perfect judge. He sees everything. He sees every motive, every thought, everything you have ever done. We don't see any of that in another person, right? We just see what happens. Let me give you an example, right? This is a hypothetical. Let's say you go down into, you know, Friday night, you go to BSB, and you're going to pick up your dinner for your family, and you're standing there, and you're waiting, and usually, they, like, you wait at the bar, right? And you just happen to look down the bar, and you see somebody whom you know who declares Jesus, and they take a shot of whiskey, and they, and they get the bartender immediately, like, give them another one. And you think, huh, that seems a little odd. What if you even know more? What if you know that that person is a struggling, recovering alcoholic, right? And you know that they have maybe just lost their job or maybe something even worse, like they're going through a divorce or they've lost a child. And you look at the situation and you think, man, they've fallen off the wagon. They're sinning. And we, because that is not for us to say we can look at a situation and all we have is very small pieces of evidence. God looks at the person and says, I know everything that is going on within that person. If we ever look at people, I mean, it, it has to be explicit, right? There are times when we know, if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that somebody has done something against God's word, against God's word, we can call it out as sin. But most of the time it's true that we see something that looks suspicious. And the way in which we approach them is not to come to them condemning and in a judgeful manner, but say, look, this is what I saw, and it just, it, it makes me concerned about you. I love you, you're my brother, and I just want to point it out, because if you need help, I want to be there for you. I want to, whatever that looks like, if you need to meet with me every morning for breakfast or prayer, if you're struggling, if you, you think you're about to fall into this sin, I am here for you. We don't know what is all going on in these situations. God is the perfect judge. Let him do his job and you do yours, right? Your job and my job is to encourage one another, to, to help people to fight against their sin. Now, 6 through 11, he tells us that he will render to each one of us according to our works. 
In other words, do good and you'll be rewarded. Do evil and God will smite you with his wrath. And if we didn't know any better, we're reading this and we think, like, this almost sounds like every other world religion, like a works-based religion. Like, what is Paul trying to communicate to us here? Because we know that we can never do enough to gain his love and his acceptance. Well, of course, this is not the whole story, right? Paul is giving us an example. He's showing us that this is what is true, right? That when we do good, God, there are rewards in heaven. But in our unrighteousness, we are shielded by Christ. We are shielded from that wrath. And yet, there still are consequences for our sin. Right? 9 and 10 apply to us in this honor, right, on this earth. It's not just, well, well, because I have been saved by Jesus, anytime I do something bad, God is going to shield me from all consequences of all of my sins. No. His wrath is not going to come upon us in the sense that we would go to hell if we have faith in Jesus. But if you do something dumb in this life, you are most likely going to feel the consequences of it. But it's also true that when we do good, what God defines as good, that we will be at peace with God, that, we, that he will receive glory and honor for our obedience. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we have peace in the way that the world describes it, but that we will have peace with God. Paul is imprisoned. He gets stoned and he almost dies several times, right? He's shipwrecking all of these things. And throughout all of that, he has peace with God. He may not have peace with the Romans or peace with men around him, but he has peace with God because he is doing what is good. I heard a story recently. It's about this guy, and he was, he was there um, with his, uh, his 13 or 14-year-old son. They're outside of Planned Parenthood, and they're praying, and they're doing what they do all the time, and they're there, and they're praying that God would spare some of the lives of the children who are being murdered inside of that building, right? And, and so he's there, and the security guard comes over to him, and he says, you know, he knows this guy. He's interacted with him a bunch of times because he's there all the time, and so the security guard comes over, starts harassing him, and then starts cursing at his 13-year-old son, like in his face, and the dad, being a dad, right, steps in between he pushes his security guard away from his son, right? And he's like, he's not going to allow that to happen. And so he gets in his face and he stops him and he won't allow this guy to keep harassing his child. And in the meantime, he pushes him over. The guy falls, right? Months later. Now, in most situations, simple assault, like you go to court, you, if you're found guilty, you probation. Very, I mean, it's usually a very minor thing when something like this happens. 15 FBI agents showed up at his house with guns drawn, pointed at him, at his wife, and at his seven kids. Why? Because he stands up for something that is good, but that is unpopular in our world and society. I'm sure that was a terrifying experience, but at the end of the day, this man is at peace with God. Even if he's not at peace with our government or the people around him, when we do good, it doesn't matter what other people do back to us. We find peace with the Lord. And it says here, this is really important, that God shows no partiality. You see, being a son of Abraham, or being somebody who can, who can look at the rosters and say, I've been at church 95%, and I've been at Sunday school 95%. Look at the title that I was the superintendent of Sunday school. It's not a thing anymore, really, right? But if you've been around a while, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I've heard people say this. Like, 
in my job, and I meet a lot of people who are elderly, and, and I even do some funerals for those folks, and that's one thing that it shows up over and over again. Oh, my mom was the superintendent of the Sunday school department for 30 years, which is a good thing. I'm not, please, I'm not, I'm not lambasting that. But if you go to heaven and you look at God and say, God, let me in because I was the superintendent of Sunday school, or that my church attendance was 95%. God doesn't care about our titles, right? He doesn't care about who we are, who our dad was. If your parents were Christians, that doesn't make you a Christian. And if your parents were heathens, right? Horrible people, that doesn't make you that. We are what we do. God shows no partiality. The Jew and the Greek doesn't matter. If you're trusting in Jesus, you can be saved. If you are doing good, you will store up treasures for yourself in heaven. And if you are not, I don't care who you are. God's not going to be impressed by who your daddy was, right? It's not going to happen. Once again, Paul makes it clear the fate of those then who never hear the law. These last four verses, all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. And he gives us this argument. Once again, he's building his arguments, right? He's stacking these things on top of each other. And so he says, look, we're all sinful, so therefore we cannot judge. And then he's saying, each one of us has the law written on our hearts. Nobody is without excuse. He says the Gentiles abide by the law without ever having read it, right? Why? Because it is written on their hearts. They know what is right and wrong inherently. They have a conscience, right? They know what is going on. There's no culture that I'm aware of where murder is okay without cause, right? We can look at cultures who have reasons for murdering other people and say, well, that's bad. Right? We, you shouldn't do that, but at least we can see, like, honor killings or something. You're like, man, we recognize the Bible condemns that, but it's not as if they're okay with people just wandering around killing people at random. Right? There's a reason. You look at these cults, right? David Koresh there in Waco. I mean, how is it that he can go around and take all of the wives of all the other men? That is weird. Even he knows that he can't just go into somebody else's house and say, your wife is not my wife, she's coming with me. He came up with these weird spiritual reasons for it. He knew better than to say, I can just have every woman that I want. And so he convinced them with reasons, bad reasons, I grant you, right? But we understand that. Even the weirdest cults in the world understand you can't just do whatever you want. And when they do crazy things, they come up with crazy reasons. But they have a reason, right? That's an important part. They know that it's wrong, and so they're trying to justify it some way, somehow. So we know God's law. It's written on our hearts. We know it. And then he makes this statement that is really quite strange. And I'm going to tell you what I think, because I'm not sure that what I think is right. But this is what it seems like to me. Here's one of these opportunities, right? Come, come and tell me if I'm wrong about this. Um, I may be. What is it, 15, I believe? Yeah, 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. I think what Paul is trying to say here 
is that without the law, you have a conscience. When you go against your own conscience, which is God's law written on our hearts, you have sinned. You are justifiably guilty and a sinner. But I think what he is putting forth here, which has never happened, would be that if somebody lived by their own conscience perfectly, it would excuse them. In other words, you know what's right and wrong. God's law is written on your heart. If you were to able to follow that perfectly, never hear the name of Jesus, it would excuse you. There would be no sin. But it's never happened. Right? Once again, it is an argument. Paul is going to tell us in chapter 3, what? There is no one righteous. No one has ever done this. And so I think the argument that he is making here is that if we could just follow our own conscience perfectly, never read the law of God we could be saved, but nobody has ever done it. It's not possible. We look at other people and we expect them to behave in a manner in which we do not behave. So lastly, where does this leave us? We know God's law, but we break it. We deserve to die because of our sin. We have no power in ourselves to save ourselves from this fate. Paul is continuing to build this argument. He's not revealed the gospel to us very clearly, but we know that it's coming, right? We know that in chapter 3 he's going to do this. But he is laboring on this point to make sure that you don't look past the fact that you and I and everyone in this world are sinners. It's not just three little verses, because we could easily sort of skip over that. It's several chapters of this to make sure that we remember how dependent we are on Christ. How desperately we need him if we are going to be saved. There's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that I can do. Now Paul's going to get to the gospel later, right? But we do have another couple of weeks of this. Looking at the depravity of our sin, how bad it is. But thank the Lord that we are not left to this, right? Thank the Lord that we are not left to our own devices to this fate. But God has a plan to save his people and Paul is going to lay that out for us. He has executed it perfectly in Jesus. I look forward to getting to that with you guys. Amen. All right. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for you. And we are, Lord, we are reminded when we read these first couple of chapters of Romans just how sinful we really are. Lord, we love you and we strive to be obedient and we recognize that we fail in that. So, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness day in and day out. Without Jesus, we would be destined for hell. And yet, because of him and because of his life and sacrifice, we have been saved. And we are so grateful for that. Lord, help us to take these verses and these words seriously. Lord, that we would be challenged to continue to fight our sin, that we would never presume upon your patience and your kindness and continue in sin, that we would not do everything we can to kill it, to rein it in, or to get it under control, to stop it completely. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.